I want to give the director some props for having a donkey as an actor because you cannot control an animal the way you can human beings where you say stand here do this do that and there were actually five donkeys who played the part of the six. Donkey. There were six donkeys. Oh, were they six? Okay. Yeah, it's even six. more. I, I'm, no, I'm supporting your point. There were six donkeys. There were six donkeys. Six one, one. one main one, and then the others were just sort of, you know, understudies. But what was interesting <laughs> to me when I was reading about it was how difficult it was to shoot because some things you would expect would be a problem, like a very loud waterfall would be like no big deal, but a cable on the floor could be an insurmountable hurdle. And I just sort of love that detail that, you know, you can never really control everything, but certainly if you're going to have an animal be the star, you have to work around the animal. The animal's not going to work around you. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about two movies that have some nominations for upcoming Academy Awards, EO and Living. And we're going to start with EO. All right, Mike, so it seems to be a remake of the classic film, O Azad Balthazar. Where do you want to start with EO? Well, looking at the program overall for today, both films actually are remakes of classic films. And so for us, should I say that we're film professors or film geeks? I guess we're both. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we thrive on stuff like this, don't we? You know, we comparison do. contrast and how the, the, all this fits into the context of film history. So we either go on for 30 minutes or 30 hours, but we'll keep it to a half hour here. The thing about EO is it really is essentially a remake of the Robert Bresson film, Alhazar Balthazar, which I don't mind confessing is one of my favorite films of all time. I've written about Bresson and, you know, this is a film that I just cherish so much. What's really striking is, although there are some notable differences, I think, between uh, Balthazar and EO, essentially they're the same in the sense that this is a thematic and I dare say even spiritual treatment of the life of a donkey. And before people laugh at me as, as I say that, I say it in all seriousness. It really is an examination of this animal and its mistreatment at the hands of humans. And so both films have that in common. So thematically, they're quite similar and a real sense of devotion, I think, to, to the source film. Stylistically, they're actually quite different. And we can talk some more about that as we go along. And, and I think they're both strong films. To anticipate a question that would come up later, the Bersaz is just one of the greatest films. And, and, and so, you know, that doesn't take away from this film, EO, which is a really strong film. And the only other thing I'll say at the outset, just to put it in context, is Bresson was a famous French director. Jerzy Skolomowski is a Polish director who's still around. He's 84 now. This is his first film in seven years. He's best known for the 1982 film Moonlighting which uh, stars Jeremy Irons. It's about Polish workers in London. But, but Skolomowski has extensive work both in his native country, indeed in his earliest years as a filmmaker, he actually was an apprentice to Andrzej Wajda and Roman Polanski and then started his own career there. But he's worked a lot in, in Great Britain and elsewhere. And he's also worked a lot as an actor. So even if you don't know the name necessarily, um, you might well recognize him. He's appeared even like in Hollywood movies like White Nights and uh, Mars Attacks even. So, you know, you could be going to the movies on a Saturday night and, and who's that old guy? Well, that, that's a famous Polish director, actually. So he's quite notable also as, as an actor. But with that kind of groundwork, just by way of this is a, a uh, an elder filmmaker now who's getting a lot of recognition for having still been around, still working after all these years. Indeed, EO has an Academy Award nomination for Best International Film and, you know, and has had some of the best reviews of, of any film that came out 
last year. And I, I even have like chapter and verse, like all, <laughs> including exclamation points of how much critics have loved this film. So with that as the sort of groundwork for it, let me turn it back over to you, Marie. Well, I want to say to everybody out there who had the reaction that the friend I went to the movie with had, yes, it's a movie about a donkey. And when I was convincing my friend to drive downtown to the Charles to see it, because that's the only place it was playing, the whole way she was like, it's a movie about a donkey, right? A donkey? The donkey is the movie, right? There's not going to be anybody in this theater. And I said, oh, you'll be surprised. I mean, the people who go to the Charles want to see everything that has been nominated for Best International Film. You know, they're very sophisticated. It's going to, there's going to be a lot of people. And she just kept insisting until we walked in that there was nobody's going to go see a movie about a donkey. Well, sure enough, the theater was packed. Everybody was interested in seeing this movie. And I don't know how many of them had seen the Brisson movie, but yes, it's a movie about a donkey. And it was surprisingly touching and engaging, much in the same way the Brisson film was. So Mike, can you expound upon the fact that yes, it's a movie about a donkey and yet it's very affecting? Why is that? Well, here's one of the reasons why the Brisson film is such a great one. He was truly a, a Catholic filmmaker in the sense that he was very religious and had his own sense of that. And ultimately, I wouldn't even want to put it in the denominational sense. I mean, he's, he's a, you know, in France and he comes up with a Catholic tradition, but, but there's a sense of spirituality in, in Brisson that I dare say transcends any sort of standard denotations as to what do you mean by this this religion or that religion there's just a, a spiritual content or essence if you will and you know Brisson's statement that you know in effect like that the wind blows where it will that, that you know these are things that and I always like to say this when people put me on the spot like well how how do you know there's spiritual content in this film or how do you measure it or gauge it I always end up saying you know what spirituality is something that you can't you know hold up to an empirical formula it's something so subjective that, that a viewer sees it or doesn't see it. And, and once you sense it, if it permeates a film, and one of the great things about Brisson's films are some of them, like Diary of a Country Priest, are overtly about a figure like, like a priest, and, and so you expect a kind of spirituality throughout the, the, the screenplay. Others of his films are about various subjects. So what is the spiritual essence? What, how is it there? There's ultimately a kind of mystery to it, but but isn't that the case? How can we explain the mysteries of religion? So anyway, without going off on theological tangents, with Alzar Balthazar, one of the things that makes it so powerful is Brisson's style, or some people would say lack of style as, as a filmmaker. He has a really austere sensibility. And so, you know, he liked to work with non-professional actors that, that he called them models, or, you know, in effect, rather than actors, and just have them be, that they were going to be the character, not act the character. And so in a film like, like Balthazar, so much of it is very straightforward in the staging, uh, very non-dramatic, non-flashy, you know, and, and what you get quite literally is the essential story. There, there's a quote from Brisson that I'll, I'll quickly cite and then just paraphrase, where Brisson said about the donkey that he, quote, has in his life the same stages as does a man. And then the quote goes on to give it like, you know, from when you're an infant through adulthood and into the final end stage where you're kind of analyzing the life you've had and so on. The fact that this is a donkey as our protagonist. And one of the most important aspects of that austerity is that Brisson refuses to sentimentalize it. This is not going to be a Disney treatment with, with a cute donkey. You know, you're not going to have some, you know, Eddie Murphy type voiceover or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not going to be that kind of cuteness whatsoever. So I'll be severe and stern in saying that. It's just simply, this is very much an animal. And it's showing how this animal suffers at the hands of humanity. The story itself is extremely episodic. 
It really, so you do get characters, but are they characters even? You know, the people appear in segments, but then as the donkey goes on to its next owner, the earlier participants, they just drop out of the film. They're no longer part of it at that point. Now, I absolutely refuse to discuss in detail the ending of the film because I don't like to spoil anything. If you haven't seen the Brisson, but I want you to see it. So the way I want you to see it is, is knowing that I think the end of Brisson's film is one of the saddest, one of the most powerful endings of any film I've ever seen. It's just overwhelming. But I won't go into the particulars of you know what happens to the donkey and how it's staged and so on. But again, that austerity. Brisson generally does not have much soundtrack music at all, but there's a Franz Schubert uh, piano sonata that's used very effectively in, in, in the film. So the Schubert piano sonata will, will come up at, at just the right moment. And a lot, of, in fact, many Brisson films will do that. They'll just have one or two pieces of music, usually classical, and they'll come up just at the right moment, just a little bit. But again, holding back from over sentimentality that way. So the ending of the Brisson film is just so overwhelming. And yet if somebody put me on the spot, well, why exactly? I could verbalize it. I could tell you this and that. But somehow it just hits me there that, you know, this animal has suffered at, at the hands of, of humanity. Now, to jump forward from the austerity of the Brisson film to uh, Eo, uh, Skolomowski actually has more what I'll call cinematic razzle-dazzle. And oftentimes when I say that, I'm saying it in a disparaging way. And I'm not saying it that way here. His film has some really fast edits. It, it has, you know, some sort of a razzle-dazzle effects visually, not just that it's in color, which already puts it beyond the Brisson, but it's beautiful color. It's, it's, it's just transcendentally beautiful color. And one thing that Skolomowski does with that, and this is why I admire his film, uh, one of many reasons I admire it is when you see the mistreatment of this donkey by almost everyone it comes in contact with, that is juxtaposed, contrasted with some strikingly beautiful natural landscapes. So you see this really inhumane behavior, but what's in the background is this gorgeous, you know, lakefront or mountains or what have you. And it's just really spectacular filmmaking in places. And so the Skolomowski film actually has more um, what I call surface appeal, or at least uh, something on the surface that you're more likely to notice. It's not the black and white austerity of Brisson. It's more, look at this landscape and, and, and what's happening to the donkey. It's, it's more overtly dramatized that way. It's, it's a bit more overt. To its credit, the donkey remains a donkey, okay? He's not going to go the Disney route what, whatsoever. And the reason I hold back a little bit on the Skolomowski is it has so much, when I say surface appeal, I don't mean that again in a disparaging way. It's really a beautiful film. I don't think it has quite as much spiritual essence as the Bresson. And again, how would I prove that? It's the subjectivity of, of religious experience. But as the Skolomowski film goes along, I do find it powerful. I'm quite moved by the end and so on, but not in the way I was overwhelmed by the Brisson. And so that's not to disparage the Skolomowski, but when, when you hold it up against what I think is one of the world's great films, okay, so if it's a notch or two below that, I'd settle for that, right? If somebody say, you know, your movie doesn't get an A+, plus, it just gets an A. Okay, I'll take the A. I'm happy. So Marie, what's your basic take on, on differences between the two films? Well, I wanted to mention that the director said the only time he ever cried while watching a movie was Ohazar Balthazar. So I think it was probably inevitable that he was going to make this movie. And I agree with you about the, the shots in the film. It's, but you know, you're kind of projecting your own humanity onto the donkey, trying to see it as a human being looking through the donkey's eyes, which every now and then the director reminds you, no, this is not like Black Beauty when you're reading the story about a horse who is talking in the first person about themselves in a kind of a human way. This is not that kind of a movie. This is observing 
And every now and then thinking you think the donkey is thinking about things in a human way, but then it reminds you that, no, he's actually an animal. And I thought that was done very deftly. There is a, a moment where the donkey gets even, which is in both movies, but it's not the story of a donkey who figures out his fate and then fights back. It's not that movie. One of the scenes I thought was really effective is when the donkey sees these beautiful vistas, a gorgeous landscape, and these horses running free. And as a human being, you're thinking, well, that's the donkey's thinking, how come they have that life? Why am I boxed up and being driven somewhere? Why, why do I have a different existence? But I'm not sure the donkey is actually thinking that at all. That's what we're thinking that the donkey should be thinking. And I think it, the movie does that, both of the movies do that in a really effective way. Yeah, just to bolster your point there, this is observational cinema. Um, whatever the director's thinking, he's not he's not uh, underscoring uh, or underlining things too overtly, too bluntly. It's the donkey in one situation after another. But where he actually sets up Marie's observations is, even though he's not editorializing overtly about you know what the donkey must be thinking, he prompts us to think that in the sense that when you see the donkey entering a new situation, we do have a clear sense of where we are and, and who the people are in that given scenario and how they're going to treat the donkey and always mistreat it, almost always. But the fact that, to Marie's point very directly, there are some really, I like your use of the word deft, there's some really astute, really deft close-up shots. Sometimes a close-up of the donkey's eye. In the foreground, you've got the donkey's eye. And how can you as a viewer not have your eyes watching it and you're looking at the donkey's eye and you're wondering what the donkey is saying there? And by extension, how can you not wonder what the donkey is thinking? And even though I, I recoil from the kind of anthropomorphism, you know, epitomized by the Disney approach, how can I not at some point wonder well, what's going through that donkey's head? And of course, we don't know. How can we prove that? But there's a passivity to it. And because it's passive and observational that way, as Marie said very well, we project onto it. We put our own thoughts onto it. And it's one reason why you've got to be an active viewer for a film like this or for the Bresson, namely that you're on a kind of spiritual journey too. You're on this expedition and not everybody takes the same trip or has the same outcome necessarily. Some people, frankly, at the end of the film might just say, well, it was a movie about a donkey, so what? In my case, I'm crying as I watch it. It's so beautiful, it's so moving. How could I share those tears with somebody else? Because unless you feel that yourself, my words are not gonna convince you at that point. And I think that's what Brisson was getting at, that this state of interiority, how can you suggest that without editorializing and say, okay, chapter and verse, here's what I'm saying. Now, I want to mention that I want to give the director some props for having a donkey as an actor, because you cannot control an animal the way you can human beings, where you say, stand here, do this, do that. And there were actually five donkeys who played the part of the Six. Donkey. There were six donkeys. Oh, were they six? Okay. Yes, there were even six. more. I, I'm all, no, I'm supporting your point. There were six donkeys. There were six donkeys. Six one, one. one main one, and then the others were just sort of, you know, understudies. But what was interesting to me when I was reading about it was how difficult it was to shoot because some things you would expect would be a problem, like a very loud waterfall would be like no big deal, but a cable on the floor could be an insurmountable hurdle. And I just sort of love that detail that, you know, you can never really control everything, but certainly if you're going to have an animal be the star, 
you have to work around the animal. The animal's not going to work around you. See, the thing is that, you know, um, animals can't talk back, but they can kick back. (laughs) (laughs) So I would be like really wary around that donkey. Don't get it irritated, you know. And actually, there are scenes in the film, as Marie mentioned earlier, where the donkey does it once or twice, get a little bit of revenge there. And you realize you're working with an animal on the set. And and that ain't easy, you know, you got you got got to make adjustments for that. And and what's what's actually, you know, all joking aside, what's so notable is in a film like this, and this is what Persson always aspired to, you need the naturalness of the performance to such an extent that it's not a performance. Just as his his human actors, he called them, in his book, Notes on Cinematography, he called them models. You know, the actors are models. They are being that character. Likewise, a donkey only knows how to be a donkey, right? So it's actually, actually, in some ways, the best actor to work with. He can't pretend to be anything else. He's just a donkey. So, Mike, is this the winner for the Academy Awards in terms of the movies you've seen for Best International Film so far? Well, it all depends on when people were viewing this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We're looking ahead to it. In retrospect, archivally, somebody would say, how could you be so wrong? But again, joking aside on that, it definitely has my vote. I mean, I think it's I think it's the best international film, one of the best films I've seen in the last year and certainly the best international film. So, yes, it gets it would get my vote. All right. Yes, for me, this is the front runner. I have not seen, there are two more I need to see, but just the fact that I have to seek them out and they're hard to find, to me says, you know, they're going to be less popular with people because they just haven't been released. So my bet is on EO. But that brings us to our second movie, which is Living, which is a remake of the great Kurosawa film Ikiru. And it stars Bill Nighy in the title in the main role, who I love. I love him in everything. I think he's great in this. And this is apparently something that Kazuo Ishiguro had always dreamed of doing a remake of Ikiru in English with Bill Nye. So let's start off, Mike, by saying, what do you think about Bill Nye in this remake of this classic film? Okay, so Bill Nye's been nominated for an Academy Award, speaking of which, as Best Actor, He definitely deserves that nomination. When I saw this film, I immediately said to the people around me, you know, this is an ideal role for Bill Nye. I mean, it's perfect for him. And he's been around a long time. He's 73 years old. Believe it or not, he has appeared in 70 movies at this point. So he's earned it, right? He's earned the nomination. His real breakthrough would have been Love Actually Mm -hmm. um, back in 2003. And this is where I think American audiences in particular really noticed him. It's a very different role from this one, I've got to say quite quickly, because in that film, he plays an aging rock and roll star and and very extroverted. And it's like polar opposite, complete opposite of what we're talking about today. But that's certainly a film that got him a lot of attention. In more recent years, just a couple of years ago, you would have seen him in a film like Emma, where he played the title character's father and son. He's just a, a lot of his work is character work. You know, you see him and he's one of like six notable actors in a piece, but you remember him. He's always good, right? There's some actors who always hit their mark. He hits his mark. Why is he so good for this role? Because in a lot of his films, he's very believable, quite plausible, playing a sort of crotchety or just sort of, you know, talking out of the side of his mouth or just observing something and commenting and so on, a a kind of snarly, uh, dry humor and so on. And he was drawn to this role because before we talk about the Kurosawa original and then this one and so on, in terms of this role, he plays a bureaucrat who finds out that he has cancer. And he's such a reserve, such a withdrawn man, such a buttoned down, buttoned up or buttoned down, such such a tightly controlled character that when he gets the diagnosis from the doctor, I mean, think about how, I don't want to think about how I'd react to it, but when you think about you're in the doctor's office and the doctor gives you the bad news, 
what does this guy say, this character? He has a one word response. He says, quite. And he has like what I call a poker face and just, okay, that's what I, I have. And I think, well, that's his personality essentially. So within the film, there will be some women who want to build a playground for children in a depressed area. And so now they have to go through bureaucratic channels. And the bureaucracy is the same everywhere. I don't care what country you're in. It, it, you're up against the system there. And they're in line and they're going before committees and this and that, and they're not getting nowhere. He finally, knowing that his own life is about to end, doesn't share that knowledge with everyone else, but very quietly at first, he tries working the channels so that this playground can be built for the women, whether during his remaining months or after he passes away, that it will get done. And Bill Nye loved the fact that he could play such a button-down character, that, that, that this guy holds in, everything's held back, and we look into the face and we try to perceive the thoughts that aren't voiced, all the stuff that's bottled up there, and finally comes out with this good deed of having the playground built. And I'll give a very brief quote from Bill Nye himself. In a recent interview, the reason he was so drawn to this character, here's what Bill Nye said. There is that kind of depressed, repressed, rigorous constraint that we insist on living under, that in almost all of our lives, we think about what we should say, what we should do, this and that, but for various reasons, because of our job title or our family bonds or whatever, we so often hold back on things. And we don't do everything we should do. And maybe we don't do it until it's too late to do it, right? And so the, here's a character who finally in the last months of his life will do the right thing, as we would put it. We'll, we'll try to get the right thing done. So anyway, Bill Nye's performance. And when I saw this film with an audience and we had a Q&A afterwards, as I was leading the discussion, person after person said, this is an ideal role for Bill Nye. He says, I mean, I, people really like the film. But it really is so much based on that central performance that you just realize in an actor's career, this is his best role ever. I agree. This is a great role for him because he gets to use that, you know, classic British reserve, that stiff upper lip, that, you know, carrying on, keeping your head down, you know, being a good citizen, all of those things. He embodies that so well. And I agree with you that love actually is what exploded him onto the screen where he sings like he does in this movie. But also the best exotic Marigold Hotel was another one of his great performances. And again, like Love Actually, he's part of an ensemble. So he, you know, contributes to the whole, but also manages to stand out. And all these roles are completely different from each other. He's wonderful in this one because he has that gravitas and the drollness that you were detailing. You just feel like there's more to him. There's a lot going on under the surface. And he just brings this character to life. Now, I want to say, because, you know, usually, Mike, you're the one who's met everybody and interviewed everybody. I actually met uh, Kazuo Ishiguro. He was a guest at a wedding that I attended. And afterwards, we all went to a pub and I sat with his wife, Lorna, and we had talked about French gangster movies and Ikiru. So, uh, you know, I had known before that, you know, he was interested in that movie and he appreciated that movie. He's nominated for the screenplay. What do you think, Mike? How do you think he did with the screenplay, given the original source material? Yeah, Ishiguro, of course, you know, Japanese origins, but grew up and, and lives, as, as Marie knows, in, in the United Kingdom. And novels like Never Let Me Go and The Remains of the Day and, and of course, you know, Nobel Prize and now Oscar nomination. What more could the guy win, right? And, He's on and, a stamp, I, too. It's a really, really smart screenplay. It's a really, it really deserves that that kind of nomination. But let's now cut to the chase on this. And 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 he has long expressed his admiration for Kurosawa. So as someone of Japanese heritage, he, he knows that, and he and he loves Ikiru, as as you heard firsthand from him. Ikiru was a Kurosawa film from 1952, 
with Takashi Shimura in the lead role. It's a remarkably powerful film. I think it's incremental in, in the way it builds towards the conclusion. The same essential story about, a, a, you know, a cancer-ridden uh, bureaucrat who wants to get the playground built, uh, but very much within a Japanese context. Like there's a wake near the end of the film that goes on and on and on, but that's how Japanese wakes are evidently. I love Ikiru. You know, I, I, I've watched it many times and it means a lot to me. I've got to say though, even though by the end of Ikiru, the final scenes are overwhelming. It's just really, really emotionally powerful. However, it is a long film. It's 143 minutes. And there are times where you think, okay, okay, okay. It really just works that material and works it and works it. And so a great film, but great length. So a little bit of a trade-off that way. If it's an advantage, at least the difference with living is, living has a running time of 102 minutes. And I don't want to seem obsessive with running times, but it's much more concise. I think it's more viewer-friendly, and I don't say that in a condescending way. I think it's more viewer-friendly in some ways because it gives you the essential story and then just really, really you know, works that material as it should be. But with the Kurosawa film, in terms of why Kurosawa made it, here's something Kurosawa said as he was thinking about working on Ikiru. Sometimes I think of my death. I think of ceasing to be. And it is from these thoughts that Ikiru came. So Kurosawa, who did have suicidal thoughts and deathly thoughts, oftentimes a kind of somber personality sometimes, he really was thinking of mortality when, when he made the film. So again, a really great Japanese film. And as that's remade here, again, I, I think the concision of the remake is an attribute of Ishiguro's screenplay, obviously. The fact that he keeps things fairly tight here and, and keeps it moving along. For that very reason, though, even though it is a moving film, push come to shove, which do I prefer? Well, the Kurosawa, Ikiru. Living, I was, I was emotionally affected by it. I, I wasn't overwhelmed by it the way I am by the end of the Kurosawa. And that's just simply, again, it's not to disparage the film at all, because it's like saying, here's a really great film, and here's a remake that is really, really good, <laughs> and maybe borderline great. Certainly, um, the central performance by Bill Nye is a great performance. So a lot of props to it in that respect. Well, I want to talk about the title, because I don't think it is effective in terms of giving people an idea of what it's about. It's concise, it's short. And it kind of gets to the heart of it, which is, you know, kind of like Shawshank Redemption, either get busy living or get busy dying. But I think this is a miss. I think calling it living is, is not a, a very good way to draw on the audience. Although I generally agree with you with what you just said, think about Ikiru. That translates as to live. Mm -hmm. So which is the better title, to live or living? So, you know, it's an interesting point you raise, but if I didn't know anything about the Kurosawa, I just wish, here's a new movie called Living, I would absolutely agree with you. I would say it's just too generic, right? Living, well, living what? <laughs> Who's living? Who's, <laughs> all those things, right? It's just, it's a blank that way. But knowing about the Kurosawa and its translation, I think, well, in its own way, isn't it mirroring what the Kurosawa title does? I think it would have been that much better to have titled it To Live. Why don't we just call it Ikiru? <laughs> Ikira, the remake. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think its prospects are for screenplay? And it's a pretty deep field for best actor. Is this movie going to walk away with any awards, Mike, in your opinion? You know, it deserves both those awards for screenplay and for actor. But the thing is, you know, it's a strong field, as you put it, like a deep field for actor and so on. So who knows in, in a case like that? But even though the film has a kind of reserve and doesn't get overly sentimental, although it does sometimes, there's a sort of a treacly piano score that, for my taste, repeats too often. It, it's too sentimental that way. I think the Academy Award voters oftentimes are inclined in a case like this to give what amounts to a Lifetime Achievement Award. 
If Bill Nye wins, it's for this and for everything else, for all those 70 movies over the years. And, you know, all joking aside on that, that counts for a lot in Hollywood. Oftentimes he's at that age and at that stage of his career where they'll want to give him an Academy Award. So I might look foolish after the fact if it doesn't turn out that way. But heading into it, I think he actually has really good prospects there. The Ishiguro is just simply such a strong screenplay. If you're just using like a kind of logical common sense approach, it's so well written. And he's, he's such a great writer. Give him the Academy Award for that. Because, I mean, I watched the film closely, scene by scene. It's really, I keep using the word concise. It's really to the point. He really, every scene is well-crafted. It's well-sculpted. Well, Ishiguro, of course, is my sentimental favorite for the Screenplay Award. And I love Bill Nighy. I agree with you, though. It would be a Lifetime Achievement Award. But I at least want to give it to him because of, in both movies, I think one of the most powerful scenes is where they're singing in a bar. And to me, it's so human, that moment, that I think that's going to be the scene they show when they're introducing that movie as a contender. And if Bill Nye does win the Oscar, I know what his acceptance speech will be. A single word, quite. <laughs> that would be the most British acceptance ever. Maybe we can get that from uh, Ishiguro as well. <laughs> Well, that does bring us to the end of this episode, but don't forget to check out our other episodes on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.